Soon after Eric Holder was confirmed as the Attorney General of the United States in 2009, he gave a speech for Black History Month that set off a whirlwind of both praise and criticism. Simply put, to get to the heart of this country, one must examine its racial soul. Though this nation has proudly thought of itself as a ethnic melting pot, in things racial, we have always been, and we, I believe, continue to be, in too many ways, essentially a nation of cowards. Holder's Nation of Cowards speech was a controversial start to his six-year tenure as the first African-American to head the Department of Justice. He went on to take up civil rights issues, directing the department to stop defending the Defense of Marriage Act in court, and he sued the state of Arizona over an immigration law that the Supreme Court later struck down. Holder also focused on voting rights, an issue central to his work today as chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. That's a partisan group that combats gerrymandering. But what about racism today? Does Holder still consider us a nation of cowards? This is Tell Me More, the Tufts University podcast where we catch up with our favorite guest speakers on campus. I'm Anna Miller. This episode, we listen in on a conversation recorded back in November between Holder and 2009 Tufts alum Jake McBee, a speechwriter and communications strategist who's worked with Holder, as well as Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. In this conversation, Holder talks about being smart on crime, the hardest decisions he ever had to make during his job, and what the average person can do to make our nation a little bit better. You had a very close personal relationship with President Obama while you were before and then while you were at the Department of Justice. But you also were very committed to an independent Department of Justice. You were coming off of a very politicized uh, Department of Justice in the administration prior. Um, and now, if, if it's possible, we've headed into an even more politicized one uh, than that. I may have to go back. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they'll take you. <laughs> um, no, not, not, not this administration. No, 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 no. I think we're in exile. Um, but why was it so important to you to have that independence, and how did that impact your relationship with the president? I mean, the Justice Department is a fundamentally different cabinet agency than any other department in the executive branch. Um, you have the power to put people in jail. You have the power to take people's property away. Um, you have the power to take the life of people. That's the, those are the toughest decisions that an attorney general has to make. Um, literal life and death decisions on whether or not somebody, you, the Justice Department is gonna seek capital punishment. Given all that power, um, you have to try to ensure, insulate the Department of Justice from, from politics. And it means that there has to be a distance between the Justice Department and the White House, a distance between the Attorney General and the President that you serve. I mean, Barack Obama and I were friends before. We were friends and colleagues during. Uh, we're friends now. Um, and yet our relationship changed um, when I became Attorney General, I guess in February of 2009. There were certain things I could not share with him. Um, and he didn't expect, I think, to be shared. For instance, when I made the decision that we were not going to defend the Defense of Marriage Act, we weren't going to defend DOMA, um, that's a decision that was made in the Justice Department by me after you know, we had all kinds of discussions. The Justice Department was split, um, and I said, all right, we're not going to defend it. Now, this is something that I didn't want him to read about in the papers, um, and so I said, all right, you know, 
we were at a Super Bowl party at the White House. Now, this is a humble brag here, right? So I was at the <laughs> Super Bowl party in the residence, and I said, hey, I need to talk to you about something. And I said, here's the deal. I made the decision. We're not going to defend, uh, I'm not going to defend DOMA. And he said, boy, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I've been, he, I've been, this is him, I've been trying to think of ways in which I could convey to you I didn't want to have DOMA defended. <laughs> but that shows you how he respected and understood the need for an independent Justice Department and how I thought that was also something that was important. You had two people who were friends um, sharing similar views about a particular um, policy determination and yet we're both struggling with how we could you know, in, how, inform how he could share his views, how I could inform him of my um, decision. The Justice Departments, the Attorneys General that forget that are the ones who tend to uh, get in trouble. For people in this audience who look at the very slow pace of change and the challenges and obstacles that we have to confront today and may be frustrated by the enormity of some of those challenges, what advice do you have for people to stay energized, to stay hopeful, to keep at it, uh, even during really challenging circumstances? I mean, I think we have to remember that, you know, change, positive change, doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, this nation is better now than it was 50 years before, and better than it was 50 years before that, but not as good as it will be 50 years from now. Um, but change doesn't happen, you know, like that. Segregation didn't end like that. Um, women didn't get the right to vote like that. Um, any number, you know, the LGBT community, I'm still in the process of trying to acquire uh, all the rights to which that community is entitled. Now, it's 50 years ago, Stonewall, 1969. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's not, you should be impatient. I think, you know, we should all be impatient for, for positive change. I mean, I've I, given a speech where I, I talk about, you know, Dr. King had um, the source of his success in being a positive change maker was as much rooted in impatience as it was in faith. And so I think we should be impatient, but we should also be realistic. You know, that letter from, the, letter from a Birmingham jail is where he's taking to task you know, ministers in Birmingham who urge him to, you know, take it easy, let things develop. And he's, no, I want things, we want, you know, how long should we have to, have to wait? Um, so it, there's that struggle between um, impatience and being strategically um, sound in your approaches. I think we made, you know, over the course of those six years, we made a lot of progress. Um, we left maybe some things, you know, undone. Um, but I'm proud, and I think history is going to treat Barack Obama quite well. You know, I think he's going to be seen um, as, as a very, very good president. Um, but my advice to people would be to, you know, identify issues that matter to you. Um, commit yourself to solving them, solving them, and try to get as much done as you possibly can. Um, and if you can't get it done, certainly leave a foundation for somebody who will follow you to perhaps you know, get that baton um, over, over the line. Uh, I think about my dad, who comes to this country as an immigrant, who served proudly in World War II, and while in uniform, while in uniform, was discriminated against in North Carolina at Fort Bragg. He was told to get to the back of a of a bus or a train. He's Oklahoma, and he's told to go to the 
back of a lunch counter so he could get a hamburger or something. And you know, he, didn't ha he didn't grow up with this experience. He's from you know, the West Indies and Barbados. Um, and I think about the America that he had and the sacrifices that he made so that his son might have chances that he did not. You know, his son got to be Attorney General of the United States. Um, so wasn't satisfied with the status quo, did what he could, um, and we should all understand, we all have the ability to be change makers. And young people need to understand something that you all have the ability to be change makers. If you look at the founding fathers, they are incredibly young people, except for Benjamin Franklin. They are incredibly young people who took on the mightiest empire in the world and created a new nation. And so age, youth, is not an excuse for um, inaction. Youth actually, given the vitality that you have, the good backs that you have, you don't have, you don't have bum knees and bum hips and all of that stuff, you all have a responsibility in a way that um, I hope that you will shoulder. We used to play a, a worst day, best day when we, when we left uh, a role. Um, so what was your worst day at the Department of Justice and what was your best day? Best day would be hard. Let me think about that one. Worst day is easy. Um, worst day was uh, the day that I went to, uh, up to, up to Sandy Hook, Newtown, and um, met with the first responders there and the crime scene search officers after those little angels had been uh, murdered, killed, that, that massacre there. And it was, they showed me around, to, took me into the classroom, and, uh, you know, it was a real juxtaposition you saw on the, um, on the ceiling, you know, kids will write, you know, what I want to do this year. And, you know, first graders, you know, you'll, you'll transpose a K, the K goes that way instead of this way, and very cute and little stick figures and all. And then you saw blood, you know, on the, the kind of the, the bottoms of the walls. And I remember looking at the carpet, and I, the carpet was kind of pulled up, and I said to one of the crime scene search officers, what's that? And he said, that's where the bullets had gone through and had pulled up, you know, the carpet. I leave there, um, crime scene search officers on one side, first responders on another side. They're crying, they're crying, I'm crying. Um, and that was clearly the worst day that I had. And the thing that got me about that day um, is that in spite of what I saw, um, we were unable to convince people in the legislature, in Congress, to pass sensible gun laws. I think if America had been with me, if I'd somehow been able to take 300 million Americans with me on that tour through that classroom that day, um, we would have gotten to a better point when it comes to, to gun safety laws. So that was easily, um, you know, the worst day. Best days, um, there was just a whole bunch of, you know, best days. Um, you know, you give a a good speech, um, you get a good decision from the Supreme Court. Um, they're just, uh, you know, there were way more good days than, uh, than, than bad days. I liked, I, liked, uh, I liked the job, it was a good job. Let's talk a little bit about the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, which you have, which you're chairing, and, and which you stood up after your uh, after your time as Attorney General. So tell us a little bit about that. Why uh, why gerrymandering was an issue that you decided to get involved in. What the what the uh, NDRC does, uh, and why it's important. Um, NDRC was formed in January of 2017. We announced it to the world, and it was to get at this whole problem of uh, 
of gerrymandering, um, where uh, lines are drawn in a way that um, drawn unfairly, um, district lines for, for Congress, for state representatives, where one party gets way too much power given the number of votes that they have, uh, have gotten, disproportionate amount of power given the, the votes that they have gotten. And that has um, an impact beyond just the, you know, the, the, the political just, or the mathematical. There's a whole range of negative things that flow from gerrymandering. You end up with um, people who are in these safe seats who don't represent necessarily their constituents, take views inconsistent with what their constituents want to do, but then don't suffer any political consequence because they're in a gerrymandered seat. It leads to um, gridlock because people are not concerned about a general election, they're concerned about a primary. And so you, if you're a Republican, you drift further and further to the right, and to be fair, in the Democratic Party, and progressive, you tend to drift maybe a little to the left. Compromise is seen as... Um, as a weakness and invites a primary challenge. And therefore, um, you don't have compromise and you have gridlock, which leads to cynicism in the, uh, in the population. But, a, but a chief among the concerns I have about gerrymandering is the lack of progress on issues that the American people are relatively unified about. 90% of the American people want expanded background checks before you can buy a weapon. And we see a Congress that does nothing, you know, nothing. Um, we've seen the House. This new House passed some things, but the Senate's not doing anything. Um, we see people who are um, share, tend to share, not to the same degree, but views about um, a, a woman's right to choose. And yet we see in some states these heartbeat bills coming out of places like Georgia and other places where, again, not supported by the people of Georgia, but supported by a gerrymandered state legislature. We don't see progress on climate that we would otherwise see. Um, people who are in these gerrymandered seats tend to serve special interests as opposed to, again, the people they're supposed to represent. We don't see Medicaid expansion in certain states, which is really kind of, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you expand Medicaid? Why wouldn't you have more people covered um, uh, by health insurance and, and save you know, rural hospitals? There's a whole range of things. There's a whole range of idea, things that are directly connected to, um, to gerrymandering, lack of progress in really critical areas. And so that's one of the reasons why I decided that I wanted to focus on something that seems a little arcane, a little wonky, um, but really has an impact on issues that I think people care a great deal about. It seems to me that if we have a fair system in 2021, unlike the one that we had in 2011, um, that will have a better, a, a, a more pure democracy um, governments that will reflect the desires of the, uh, of the people. So how do you go about making that change, especially now since Supreme Court handed down a case in, uh, a handed down decision in June uh, to, to keep federal courts out of uh, gerrymandering decisions? Does that change the way that you think about it? Does it change the way that you work on that problem? Um, what's the way forward? Well, when we stood up the NDRC, we said, all right, we're going to have a four-pronged strategy. We're going to um, file lawsuits, and I'll get back to that. We're going to elect candidates, support candidates who will stand for fair redistricting. We're going to support reform efforts. Um, and that really means putting put our weight behind um, these efforts to put take it out of the hands of politicians altogether. Don't let politicians pick their voters or draw the lines. Let's put this in the hands of these nonpartisan commissions. Let them draw the lines. They have them in California, have it in Arizona. Um, we supported ballot measures in four states where they now have them. 
Colorado, Missouri, Michigan, and Utah. Um, they now have those in place. And then we have a, a, a big component of our, is our advocacy program. We've got hundreds of thousands of people around the country advocating for, um, uh, for fair redistricting. When it comes to the litigation component, um, it would have been good to get a good decision, I think an appropriate decision, out of the Supreme Court as opposed to the 5-4 bad one that we got. Um, but that only closed the federal courts to partisan gerrymandering cases. We can still bring racial gerrymandering cases in federal court, and a lot of times those things are on, on top of one another. But it also means now that when we bring partisan gerrymandering cases, we have to bring them in the state courts and use the state constitutions as we just did in North Carolina where we got a three-judge panel there applying the North Carolina Supreme Court to say that the state legislature was unconstitutionally gerrymandered and that the congressional delegation in North Carolina was unconstitutionally gerrymandered. So that's what we're going to have to do. We've done it in Pennsylvania, we've done it in uh, North Carolina, and it's a slog. We'll just have to go you know, state by state when we're bringing partisan gerrymandering cases. for answering my questions, and now I'll open it up to folks in the audience. Hello. On this campus and uh, in the hearts of activists everywhere, the ideas of restorative justice as opposed to punitive justice um, have definitely been spoken about. And with your vast experience, I was wondering if you had any ideas on whether that could be popularized in American discourse or um, what obstacles might stand in the way of more sort of a fair justice system. Yeah, I mean, that's actually one of the things I hope, we talked about legacy, I hope people will look at uh, my time at the Justice Department and the Obama administration to see that we stood for and made meaningful changes, uh, at least with regard to the system that we could control, a federal criminal justice system, and that we introduced measures there that were significant um, when it comes to criminal justice reform. That, you know, we had an administration that for the first time reduced the federal prison population at the same time that the crime rate went down. It's the first time that happened in 40 years. And that was because I think we came up with ways in which we said, you know, we're not going to be tough on crime, we're going to be smart on crime um, and make it not only finding people, trying people, giving them the longest sentences that you possibly could, but to come up with prevention activities so that um, people would not become involved in the criminal justice system in the first place. Um, don't warehouse and forget people who are in the system. Deal with the deficits that they have that probably got them involved. And then on their way out, give people um, the ability to function in um, the world that they will confront once they leave the system. You know, one of the things that always amazes me is that we think we can take people who have these issues, uh, warehouse them, take them out of the system, and then put them right back in the same places where they come from and expect a different result, you know? Um, so our view was that it was not only the Justice Department that had to be involved in this, the Labor Department had to be involved, the Education Department had to be um, involved. We had tried to remove barriers um, that were put in place for people to live, for instance, in public housing, you know? Um, simply because you have a criminal record, you can't get access to you know, federally subsidized public. What does that mean? If you're not a danger and you have served your, um, your time, well, you know, or, or job barriers, you know, checking the, the box and you know, trying to ban the box, all those kinds of things. Um, we can have a more fair 
criminal justice system that keeps the American people safe. I and mean, that's the thing, that's got to be job one. We can keep the American people safe, and we can do it more efficiently, uh, and we can do it more, um, more fairly. I was wondering what was the hardest decision that was brought to you while you were Attorney General, and what process did you take to work through all those options and figure out the decision? Yeah, the toughest decisions, I think, were not only, you know, the Alaki um, matter, but also just the, the death penalty determinations. I'm a person who's personally opposed to the death penalty. Um, as Attorney General, you have to apply the law. And for certain offenses, the death penalty is available. And so there's a process that you go through in, you know, in the department. There's uh, a capital case committee that listens to the defense attorneys, listens to the prosecutors, and sends memos up that have to be signed off on by the assistant attorney general, the criminal division, the deputy attorney general. But ultimately, it's the attorney general who makes a go, no-go decision. And those are, um, those are the hardest decisions, because you know that if you say, um, we're going to seek the death penalty, and in most cases, the overwhelming number of cases, the Justice Department's going to win the case. Now, it's not as totally as clear that you're going to get the death penalty in a case where you've convicted somebody in a capital-eligible case, but that possibility is certainly there. And um, the notion that, you know, when I put my signature on a piece of paper, means that I'm potentially going to sanction the extinguishing, the state extinguishing of a life. Those are the toughest um, decisions. Um, those are decisions that um, I never made in the office. I would always take the recommendations home, um, the papers home, and in the still of the night, everybody's gone to bed in my house, I'd put them on the, this big table we have in our kitchen, and I would, that's where I would make the... Um, Decision, oh, but those are tough, tough, um, very tough decisions. We have to make one up here, you know, with regard to the um, the marathon bombing. Um, a young man, a very young man, um, a teenager, and uh, had some people who were uh, victims um, or relatives of, of victims who said, "Do not seek the death penalty." People in law enforcement said to to make the to seek the death penalty. Um, and that was one where I decided that um, seeking a death penalty was uh, was appropriate. It was a tough decision, a really tough, uh, tough decision. And one, um, I'll just say it, I mean, if I'd gotten any indication, any indication of remorse from um, the defense attorneys, you know, uh, any indication of remorse, because um, I factored in a whole bunch of things, you know, young, this is a, this is a young guy, so this is a you know, kid, um, but they could, uh, and we went back to them two, three times, give me, you know, anything, and um, just never came. And I thought given the nature of the harm, um, that seeking the death penalty in that case was, uh, was appropriate. Those are the ones, as I said, that still, I mean, you know, there's a lot about the department and what I did I can't remember. There, there are those things that still stick, uh, stick with me. Hello, I I'm Charles, and I'd like to know are we still a nation of cowards? Okay. Um, well, you know, I, that comes from a speech that I gave with Black History Month um, in 2009, where I said that when it comes to things racial, that we are too often a nation of cowards, that we don't really face 
racial issues. We don't have frank um, conversations with one another about race that we become expert at avoiding talking about racial issues. I think the speech has actually held up pretty, pretty well. Um, are we still a nation of cowards? I think we are a nation that's made progress, but I still think we're a nation that is uncomfortable with discussing and dealing with issues of race. Um, we are, as a nation, unwilling to understand that the impact of Jim Crow is still felt in the 21st century, that the slavery experience um, is still fe felt in the 21st century, um, that there are still barriers that people of color have to, um, have to deal with that others in this society do not. Um, that you know, any, by any number of measures, we are still not at the place where we need to be um, racially, whether it's income measurements, levels of academic achievement, rates of violence. Um, and we can talk about how economics affects all of that, but race, race, is still an issue that is um, a defining characteristic. You know, I walk into a room and people, you know, you saw, how do you identify this guy who's walking into the room? Well, he's tall, you know, he's thin, maybe not as thin as he used to be, whatever. See, and people say, he's a black man, you know? He's a black man. And I get that. We are not at the point where, you know, uh, my, this, my color of my skin is not a defining characteristic. It still is. And we're not yet at the place where um, we need to be. So yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure I'd call us a nation of cowards um, as much as a nation of people who are just still too reluctant to uh, engage. Now, I think that given all that we are dealing with now, that conversation and then action, action based on that conversation is um, really sorely needed. I think the Obama years gave us a great deal of, of hope. Um, you know, not that everything was solved, but hope. Uh, I think these last three years have taken us back, you know, in a lot of ways. The divisions that um, race tends to create, I think, have been exploited for political gain. And I think it's something that we are, as a nation, are going to have to try to correct in the years, uh, in the years to come. So I don't apologize for that speech. I don't apologize for the use of that term. Um, I'm actually proud of that speech. And you know, for all the conservatives who gave me grief about that, it's almost as if I got up and said, "America's a nation of cowards," and sat down. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you didn't? Did you read the speech, Congressman? Did you read the speech, Senator? You tell me what about that speech? You know, it is that you don't you don't agree with. Um, so no, I still I stand by uh, you know, but what I what I said there. had a good conversation here about a, a whole variety of things. Um, and as I said, I look out at this distressingly young group of, of, of people, and those who are young at heart. Um, I would urge you all to, it's kind of consistent with the questions that you've asked. You know, ask yourself, what is it that I can do to make this country better? You know, how do I contribute? My, I've had a number of titles in my life, and I think I've gotten in some ways the most important one now, citizen, citizen, you know? I have to, it's easy, not easy, but, but you know, if you're attorney general, 
things are given to you to decide. As a citizen, you have to make the decision of what is it you're going to be involved in. And I would urge you all to figure out a way in which you can get involved in that process. Dr. King said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But that arc doesn't bend on its own. That arc bends when people like you put their hands on that arc and pull it towards justice. And that's what I think you have to do. I would urge you at the end of every week to think about, say Sunday, 7 o'clock in the evening, kind of a quiet time, think about what have you done in the past week to bend that arc, to make this nation better, to make the society more fair. And at that same time, think what are you going to do in the week to come that's going to make this nation better, make it more fair. And again, it doesn't have to be political, you know? It can be involved in youth activities, helping senior citizens. I mean, you know, what is it that you're doing? How can you use an hour or two um, a week? Again, it won't be easy. I understand that. We have very important business lives, academic lives, personal lives. Um, you want to have fun. I, I get all that. Um, but this will make, it might seem like a burden, but you'll ultimately feel better about yourself, and you will have, trust me, you will have a measurable impact on our nation. You'll make that nation better. Um, so that's what I would urge you to do. Um, find that way. Be an active and engaged citizen and bend that arc towards, towards justice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for coming. Tell Me More is produced by Anna Miller and Julie Flaherty. Web production and editing support is provided by Taylor McNeil and Sarah Norberg. Our music is by DeWolf Music and Blue Dot Sessions. And we would love to hear what you think about our second season. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Or shoot us an email at tellmemore at tufts.edu. That's T-U-F-T-S dot E-D-U. Thanks for listening.